Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. We're going to be talking a lot about building and scaling. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the segment that he's in is quite the right time in history, I would say. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andreas Thorsheim. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So originally born there in Norway, I mean, obviously you had the, quite the upbringing, you know, quite international, you know, I'm sure that that shaped you quite a bit, but give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> I'm a Norwegian and born in the, the beautiful city of Oslo in, in Norway. Uh, but we, we left the, the country when I was one year old to, to live in South Africa. My, my uh, parents worked in the foreign service, so we feel, felt a bit like joining a circus, you know, uh, moving around and, and going to different places with with their work uh, all the time. So got to got to experience uh, living in South Africa, Namibia, Geneva, in, in Switzerland, Paris, France, before being of a, an age to decide on my own uh, location and, uh, and and direction. So very much of an international upbringing, and I think. I've I've heard that there's quite a lot of founders that come from uh, from that type of uh, backgrounds, either military families or, or doctors or, or 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 other people who move around because it allows you to have different perspectives than the guys you you're uh, you're growing up with and, and figuring things a bit out for yourself, being a new kid, and that's maybe not the worst experience to have when you're setting out to to, uh, to challenge the status quo. So um, I'm very much one of those uh, moving around kids. And how do you think that shaped you? Because moving around, making new friends, you know, uncertainty, I'm sure that that served you very well now that you're a founder. Yeah, sure. You know, it's get to be the new kid in class uh, every uh, every three, three years. And uh, you start at the, the bottom of the ladder with everything to, to prove. And uh, in a way, that's what you're doing when you're starting a company. Uh, so you get to, you, you need to toughen up a bit and uh, believe in yourself uh, to do that. And uh and then, it, of course, it's, it helps to have support around you. So I'm super thankful for my, my mom and dad and uh, my brother. Who've been, they've been the, quite the unit since I was uh, a kid. And uh, I think it's uh, illustrative of what you need as a founder also, right? You need, uh, you need the ground support in, uh, at home and, and then friends and family who support you early on and uh, angels who support you a little bit later on. Those things are, uh, uh, those things are essential. That's for sure. 
Now, for you, I mean, it's you, you really got into business. I mean, obviously, that's what you studied too. So, I mean, what, what was that thing about business that, that you enjoyed, you know, early on? I'm, I'm not sure I was like this business-minded uh, kid, you know, as uh, I remember the last day of high school, I was like, uh, I'm never doing economics. And then a year and a half later, after completing military service, I was... I was in business school, so I don't know what happened uh, happened there. But I, I haven't been a guy who's kind of had my direction uh, staked out early on, and, and uh, I did. I wasn't the guy who had a lemonade stand, or uh, uh, the, my bank account had always a zero in it until I was sort of uh, well into my my twenties. So I was like uh, not a particularly entrepreneurial, or at least not business minded kid. I was a creative kid. Uh, I used to make really cool Halloween uh, disguises and that type of stuff uh, and insane Lego Lego stuff. But uh, I think more, more of a builder than a businessman early on. So I think uh, uh, me, me going to, to, to business school and studying economics later on, I uh, guess, uh, wouldn't have been something that would have impressed the 16-year-old me at all, right? That does sound, sounded boring and in a way it still is. <laughs> I don't, I don't so so, so what, 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 what do you think clicked for you then? You know, what do you think, you know, was that thing? I mean, you were talking that you were, you went to military service and then, you know, that, that kind of like clicked it, you know, and, and, and it went to the high gear to go to the London School of Economics and, and then put it on track, you know, in that direction. But what, what do you think changed? I don't know, maybe something about uh, just, I, I think, you know, those formative years in, in the early 20s, you're, uh, you're figuring the world out a little bit and, uh, I guess uh, this was quite shallow to me in a way that I, I saw that you got better opportunity by making certain choices than uh, than others. And I, I didn't feel like I wanted to be left behind or uh, seeing, you know, kids who were doing worse than me at school get a better life than me. So I thought I'd sort of do things that gave me optionality for later in life, right? And then uh, going to... to schools that had uh, some renown and uh, and um, taking classes that uh, had a, a, a nice chance of landing you a job. I, th I think I, I got uh, sort of cynical enough in, in uh, the, the, my 20s to realize that I, I ought to do that, right? But, uh, but it wasn't with any particular plan. And, and any time I was given the choice, I always chose, chose things that were more about how society worked and, and less about balance sheets. Uh, you know, uh, I, was, I was still very much into the, the big questions and, and trying to, to, to figure stuff out rather than, 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 than I guess, earn points. But I, I wanted to earn enough points to, to not, not lose optionality, I guess. Yeah. And why, why, why in your case going, to, going back to, to Norway, to Oslo? Because you know, here you go to the London School of Economics, uh, and one of the best uh, schools for for business in Europe, and um, you know, there's a lot of people that see that you know get to experience the incredible salaries too that you get in London. So why going back home? For love, you know, it's the best reason uh, there is. You know, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right. no, I had a, I had a girlfriend in in uh, in Norway. So, uh, but I also felt like I wanted to. I wanted to to be settled in one place. I, you know, it's uh, um, a lot of international kids. They end up just being sort of this globe trotting or, or jet setting type of life where you, where you never uh, you never anchor up, um, and you get a lack of stability. That I guess I think you know 
has a tendency to get to you over some time. So I wanted to have some stable friends and and feel like I could get my roots in the ground somewhere. So to me, it was a uh, uh, it's quite intentional to to try and um, set up a life where I'd have you know uh, friends that I'd chosen and that I could stick together with for uh, for more than three years. That was something I hadn't. Uh, had a lot of when I was uh, in my early twenties, so I thought like I, I really want to be stuck with the same bunch of people for for a extended period of time. So uh, so I think that the home bias was one way to 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 get that about and go you know go back home and and, and get the roots in the ground. I think that was the motivation. So you know very much the the idea to have people around you that that would be there for some time. And obviously, you know, in in your case, you you were for some time in Shipstead, which which was the first uh, you know real rodeo for you. I mean, there you learned about numbers, you learned about logistics, operations, management, you know, people, everything. So, so what would you say were your top three lessons there? If you had to like uh, you know put them together. Yeah, so I I joined Shipstead uh, after um, university, and for those who don't know Shipstead, it's a a company that uh, grew out of a, a family-owned uh, media business, uh, traditional style, uh, coming from from Norway, uh, but then turned into an international juggernaut doing online media and online classifieds, uh, first in in all of Scandinavia, then all of Europe, and later South America and Asia, uh, and turned into a bit of a, a global uh, online classified giant, and uh, ended up with acquiring ebay classifieds here uh, a couple of years back so really a fantastic transformative story of a of a family-owned traditional business of which there were kind of 200 of those companies um, in europe uh, 50 years ago and there's like a, maybe axel springer and ships that are the the only ones with any you know claim to fame and then in an online world right so um a cool company to join at a transformative time and a company that was rehashing all of its organization while while doing this so it gave young people a lot of responsibility and if you succeeded in one domain they weren't shy of, of moving you to something else so it really gave, gave me this sort of all-around exposure to to many different parts of a um, uh, of business so super thankful for the years at, at Shipstead and top three uh, lessons is uh, trust your talent and uh, they were exceptional in doing that it's uh, think bigger they were a local player that turned international and uh and that on like on the back of a hundred years of local history and then they just decided to go international and, and did that tremendously well um i'd say also make it fun um it was um just an incredible mix of people who, who enjoyed going to work together and just uh having a, a positive work uh, environment that's just that's just incredibly important so, so basically, on your end, you know, right after Shipstead, you know, you're going to Opera Software, and Opera Software is literally like the most immediate step, you know, before you know you go actually at it on your own as an entrepreneur, and and it sounds like like Shipstead, you know, really shaped you up, you know, to really have that readiness. So, what do you think, you know, like because as they say, you know, ideas, you know, take time, you know, they are dormant, you know, they there's like certain events that really trigger us to push us to really make them happen. But what do you think was the case for you. What do you think pushed you over the edge to say, "Hey, you know what? I think it's my time to to really get going." Um, I joined Opera Software because I uh, thought it was an exciting technology competing in the most 
exciting markets in um, in in online competition right they're they're focused on the indian subcontinent and emerging markets and creating products for for that part of the world was really exciting to me so so i joined there as svp of products in in 2014 or 15 i can't remember and uh it was really to be part of a competition where you'd be facing off against the the Californian uh, big guys and the uh, and Chinese uh, tech companies, and signing up for a, a European company that had been founded 15 years uh, prior to that and was very much part of the first uh, uh, wave of uh, of tech companies coming out of of Europe at the, the dot com boom, and uh, I was really excited to join that company. Uh, and then to me, it was a learning on how much difference there is between having a good system and having good talent. And Shipstead was a company that was all about the system. Like all kinds of players turned into good players when they played for that club, right? It was, uh, you, you know, like some football clubs are like that and and some just need to buy the best players, but they don't have a system. And an and Opera Software was a bit in that category right? where you had like individually exceptional people but it was like yeah, uh, the logistics of that organization was just a complete mess. And I, I learned to what degree, first of all, my own successes in ships that were not probably only my uh, merit. They were also the merit of a, of a, of a fantastic organization that could make um, pretty much the people who joined their uh, performance, right? And then I came into this uh, thing that was run more like a pirate ship where the individual pirate uh, skills <laughs> were what mattered. So to me, uh, I got a lot of respect for uh, for the untidiness of growth and uh, like the raw power you need to put into it in order to to pull off competing in that type of environment with an organization that still is 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 young and and unfinished in in terms of its process and system building. So um, I think it's it turned me into a rougher a rougher type, right? I was like this this executive type and a bit of a sort of a golden boy in a company that I'd worked for for more than ten years, and then I came in as a as a, a new joiner in a, a much more uh, raw talent organization, and it it kind of I got it untaught a lot of the things I'd learned in uh, in in ships. Then I think that's important, right? That you don't think you have things figured out. You need a you need a humility when you start as a as a founder. So I, I think just it it kind of yeah took took away some of the snobbishness I had from corporate life and turned me into to a much more of a, a, a true tech guy. Um, and that was necessary for for my eventual journey as a as a, a founder. That's for sure. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past, and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash dealmakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now let's talk about Otobo, your baby, eh? the the rocket ship that you're in. So, you know, quite interesting, you know, to start a solar type of company in Norway where, where you don't have that much sun. So, you know, I know that the early days, you know, were probably, you know, not easy. But I guess before we go into it, for the people that are listening to really get it, what is the what is the business model of Otobo? How do you guys make money? Otobo is a marketplace that combines homeowners on the one side uh, with installers of solar panels and batteries on the other. So for the homeowners, it's an e-commerce experience where you go to an Otobo site in Italy or Spain or France or Poland or or wherever you happen to to live. Uh, we're present in thirteen European uh, countries currently, and you input your address. The software will figure out the shape of your house and how many panels will fit there. Um, And then it will ping installers that we have recruited on the back end of the system to figure out their cost uh, and then present you uh, the cost of putting solar panels on your roof. And you can buy it online just as easy as you buy a shirt or a pair of shoes. Um, Now, in order to do that, you need to know about the installers on on the back end, right? So on the supply side of the marketplace, We've recruited about 700 installer companies that are good workmen who who have local businesses typically of installing solar panels and and batteries. And then they've gone through a wizard where they input their panel costs and and working costs and driving costs and all the other things that go into building a solar system. Um, And once we know those prices and the shape of the house, it's an easy calculus to figure out how many euros it will cost to put 15 or 16 or 17 panels on your roof so that when you select 17 panels, we can present the price immediately. Now, that price comes up, up as a, an auction that gets run in a second online. The best installer is the base cost, and we mark that up. So the installer is a cost to us, and the consumer is the income to us. And of course, we take a, a, a take rate in between there, and that's how we make our, our money. So if, if the installer costs 10,000 euros and we sell the system for 13,000 euros, we pocket pocket 3000 right so that's uh, that's the model and for that we need to cover our our cost of creating that uh, relationship and that's marketing and 
and sales and, and the post-sales logistics. So how do you guys go about product market fit? Because, I mean, I'm sure that that was not easy being where you're at. No, I can tell you um, the idea was quite simple, right? Um, my observation was that as solar panels get cheaper and they get cheaper by about 10% per year, that means that solar energy will win on price everywhere in the world. Observation number one. Observation number two is that once the panel becomes cheaper, uh, you can almost imagine a world where the panel is free, but getting it up on your roof won't be free because you need a local guy to fix it to your roof. And you probably need to be aware of the amazing product that solar panels are. So, so you're going to have to be marketed and sold to. And those two things, they don't drop in price by 10%. So increasingly, that's where the problem is in solar. The panels are working. Uh, the manufacturing of these things churn out panels at an incredible rate, but they're not getting up on your roof. And so you're you're facing a last mile product, a problem. And that's the same thing as Fedora or Uber or other online platforms do. They solve a last mile problem. So so that the idea was kind of easy. Sell solar panels online using installers that already exist. Now, how do you go about doing that? Well, you need to start selling the solar panels uh, online. And, and we did that back in, in Norway in 2016. And that was a, a rough place to start a solar uh, company, right? You can take up a, a globe and you can see in Norway as at the very top there and means that the solar rays are hitting at a terribly disadvantageous uh, inclination. And for the winter half year, there's less uh, sun here than pretty much anywhere in the world. And electricity is super cheap. So you, you're not that incentivized to get any alternatives. Um, so it's in a way that probably the hardest place to get solar product market fit for a solar company. Now, the good thing about starting a place where getting product market fit that is difficult is that if you succeed there, you can take your show on, on tour anywhere else in the world and it will be incredibly competitive. So, so we spent two years just selling solar panels online and guessing the cost before even the installers were willing to give their prices to us. We were just guessing what we could get this installed for later on. And obviously, we got into this self-selection bias where every time we miscalculated too cheap, we got the sale. And if we miscalculated too expensive, uh, consumers weren't interested. So we, we kept selling systems uh, cheap and then having to install them expensive. So we kept losing so much money. I think one year we, we subsidized the Norwegian solar uh, consumer more than than the state aid to the sector, so uh, you can <laughs> you can imagine the, how we felt in those first two years. I have some gray hair, and they're all from from back then. <laughs> it was just so it was just so hard. Uh, but then uh, you know you you keep going at the problem, and and after two years, I, I think we we felt that now we we have it right. The the consumers are converting on on really acceptable levels. It, it, the, the unit economics are going to add up at at the at the front end of the store and on the back end installers are putting in prices and it's predictable and they also adjust to events the way they're supposed to so that uh, the market is working when panel costs go down the installers take down their their prices and, and that's reflecting the price of the consumer okay this uh, uh this baby is uh, is walking now let's uh let's get it uh, let's get this uh, this show on the road right so Spent uh, spent two years getting gray hair and losing money in, in Norway, and then uh, and then we thought, okay, now uh, now let's let's go international. So we took the huge step to go to Sweden the year after, and uh, 
And that started replicating what we'd experienced in, in, in Norway in the last year. So we're like, okay, let's not wait until this thing matures. We need to, to keep going. So then it was France and Spain and Poland and Italy and Germany. And we've kept, kept going since, uh, since then. So it's been a fantastic spree of countries uh, since then. And now the, the older ones are turning profitable. So uh, it looks like the, the bet is, um, is coming in. So that's great. And, and, and in terms of, I mean, you were alluding to growth. I mean, when it comes with growth, you know, you got to put money with it. So, so how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we've raised about 100 million uh, euros, pretty much to the dime, I guess. And in that, in that sense, I mean, how would you say that the fundraising environment has changed? Because, I mean, you've been at it now for close to seven years with Otobo. So I'm sure that you've seen, you know, the landscape, you know, for fundraising and accessing capital changing quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, back in, in 2015, when I got this idea, clean tech was just so out of favor. You can't imagine. You know, Peter Thiel had just written uh, Zero to One. Uh, and there's a whole chapter in that book dedicated to how lame clean tech is and how ill-suited it is for, for venture capital. I remember the week I was planning my first fundraising, uh, the MIT Technology Review had its front page covered in an article saying uh, clean tech and venture capital the wrong model uh, it was just uh, it was just so out of favor i was in the 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 elevator at north zone and i got uh, i got rejected in the elevator right <laughs> you can imagine my elevator pitch was pretty i don't know either pretty stink elevator pitch or a very poor environment for for this type of company <laughs> so uh, no it was uh, it it was really uh, disadvantageous uh, time and I think the, the companies that came out from that period were either, either so exceptional or or went a bit of an un, untraditional uh, route, taking in maybe more corporate venture capital and other pockets that were a bit more resistant to the sentiment. And then it's been uh, a, an enormous change after the Paris Accord and after people's awareness of of the reality of climate change and. Uh, uh, the economic transition related to that and, and the opportunity that represents, it's just been tremendously different. And of course, the, the valuation of, of Tesla and, and a few other of the, of the most successful companies really has also changed the perspective on the sector as a whole, I guess. So uh, say it felt very different in, in 2021, uh, 2020 than it did back in, uh, in 2016, that's for sure. No kidding. Now, if imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Otoo is fully realized, what would that world look like? There'd be solar panels on every uh, roof in Europe and there would be batteries in every uh, one of those homes. People would uh, make and uh, store and consume about a third of the electricity that they, that they depend on. Uh, from sources that they uh, have in their home. It's a transition that looks like going from a couple of big mainframe computers to everyone having a, a PC or, or a mobile phone. And that's going to happen to energy, a lot of local uh, stuff. And then that enormous fleet of very small energy producing and energy storing assets will be able to play in concert so that uh, if the grid needs stability by consumption of energy getting reduced, then our software will trigger tens of thousands of batteries in, a, in one grid 
um, to charge or discharge uh, their power, depending on what the grid needs. And of course, you know, we and the consumers will be paid for providing that uh, that service. It's a world in which uh, coal power and and uh, gas powered and, and other fossil fuel powered power plants are are out of the European grid. Um, and it's um, it's a world in which all this uh, local and clean energy helps other clean technologies succeed, like electric vehicles and uh, software for for managing the electricity consumption in your in your uh, home. Um, and uh, the good thing about this is that I, I won't have to sleep for a hundred years to wake up in that world. I, I think it's a lot closer. <laughs> well, it's coming. I mean, obviously, climate change. You know, people are very conscious of what's going on. So, so I guess, I mean, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of Otobo today, anything that you can share about maybe like number of employees or anything else that you're comfortable with? Yeah, no problem. We we got listed on the Oslo Stock Exchange here a year and a half ago. So we need to be public about quite a lot of quite a lot of things. So so no problem in, in, in being quite detailed on, on numbers. Um, we sell about 10,000 systems per year right now. Uh, our aim is to double that by by next year, and we feel tremendously confident in our ability to keep growing at 100. percent We've been doing that the last few years, and um, that looks looks feasible with new countries coming up and, and new market share uh, getting gained in, in the older markets. Um, we are uh, between 300 and 400 employees. Uh, that growth is is happening in in the the 13 cities in which we're present in Europe. So. We're hiring uh, engineers and, and commercial talent in, uh, in all the, the major cities in, in, in Europe pretty much now. Um, and um, it's, it's a company that's um, with, with 10,000 installations, we're, we're at the run rate of about 100 million euros in, in revenues per, uh, per year. And, and if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, Maybe to that time where you were thinking about doing something on your own. Maybe when you were still working at Opera Software and thinking, hey, you know, what would that world be where I was, you know, to come up with something no? and, and bring it to this world? If you were able to have a chat with that younger Andreas and give that younger Andreas maybe seven years ago one piece of advice for launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? You're going to get very good at uh, recruiting uh, great people. So start believing in, in your ability to do that right from the start. Uh, you're going to have an amazing team and you uh, um, just trust yourself in the ability to bring a great team together. I would also say it's going to be exactly as hard uh, as you think it is. Make sure that everyone around you uh, understands how how hard and how long this uh, journey is, uh, is going to be. To some extent, I think I, I did, but uh, uh, that uh, would have been good to have some validation on my, my early thoughts being right because uh, I had a knot in my stomach. And I guess also I probably should have said to my earlier version of myself, like, don't worry this much, right? If it if it blows up, uh, I guess it won't be the world. And since I'm coming from the future and having had having had success, you can you can trust this is going to go well. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Andreas, it has been an honor to have you on the Deal Maker Show. Thank you so so much. I guess just to wrap it up for the people that are listening that want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to reach out and and getting get in touch with you guys 
Uh, well, uh, Otobo has the handle Otobo Solar on Twitter. Uh, we exist on LinkedIn. We have uh, Facebook pages in most European uh, countries, I think, by now. So check out your local uh, Otobo social uh, media. And if you want solar panels on your roof, it's Otobo plus your uh, your local domain. Uh, so um, hopefully we'll we'll see you either in the customer backlog or uh, uh, as a as a direct message uh, somewhere in the in the future. Amazing. Well, Andreas, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.